<clears throat> Anybody have opportunity to put Colossians 2.9 to memory? Mind just sharing it with, uh, with us. <clears throat> Lydia, do you still remember it? Sorry, I'm putting you on the spot, which is never fun, so I won't embarrass you, sorry. We've been looking at Christ, our mediator, in chapter 8 of the Confession. Colossians 2.9, For in Him dwells all the fullness of God, of the Godhead bodily. And we understand that a mediator is someone that goes between when we're speaking of Christ, our mediator, the go-between God the Father and us, why do we need a mediator? Because there's a problem. And that problem is sin. And we cannot go. And the beginning of chapter 8, I think, says it so beautifully. I think it's paragraph 1. Without the condescension, condescension on God's part, we would be hopeless. It was God only who could come to us. We couldn't go to him. And our mediator came to us. Paragraph 6, we continue. And it says this, Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world being the same yesterday and today and forever. When I read this at first, I I thought that was a typo, forever. Uh, But it's a little bit of old English there, too, in how that is stated. Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his incarnation, we see, the number one, the efficacy of Christ's death. And uh, I'm kind of picking up a little bit last week where Mr. Powers left off. At the end of paragraph 5, it helps us to understand that the payment, the substitutionary atonement of Christ was for the elect only. We understand that to be called the L in tulip. If sometimes uh, you have total depravity, I don't even know them all. See, I'm not a good Calvinist, I guess. Uh, I don't follow Calvin. Uh, unconditional, unconditional election. Thanks, Marcus. He's in seminary, so he's a good... No, uh, L, limited atonement. And uh, I think sometimes the, the idea of limited atonement, uh, Christ's ability to save is not limited. But a particular redemption, I've heard it called, I think is a great idea for us to understand that a particular people was redeemed in Christ. That Christ died for just the elect. And this begins to kind of ruffle some feathers. To say for, for someone, when we speak to them about a limited atonement or a particular redemption, people will say, no, Jesus died for all the world. And I think the question would be, then why are people in hell? 
If Christ died for the world, then universalism should be the case. For Christ's death would atone for the whole world. And how is God just to condemn people to hell if their sin has been paid for? You follow me there? I, I, I realize the, the weight that, that bears but God would be unjust. He would be punishing somebody for something that was already paid. It would be like putting somebody back in jail after they already served their time. We understand in John 10, 15, I apologize on PowerPoint this evening, but as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Again, we don't want to just take one verse. Matthew twenty twenty eight. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, do you know what that says? For many, not for all. For many, it's limited. Ephesians five twenty five. <clears throat> we speak of this often. It's <clears throat> husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself up for her. We could spend a lot of time looking at this doctrine. And it's not the point to build a whole understanding of this. But to see the highlight here. But the, uh, an opposing position would be the Arminian position that, that says that Christ redeemed all. But it's not applied to all. That it... it the money's in the bank, but we need to cash the check. I've heard that exact phrase stated because I spoke those words. That it's sufficient for all, but only those who by faith take it, receive it. But who gets the glory there? Mankind. It becomes man-centered. And uh, the, the hallmark verse that people turn to is 1 John 2, 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life and here's where you get that the truth that christ died he died for the whosoever who are the whosoever the elect again i believe we must be careful as we consider this and it's not fatalism it doesn't throw our responsibility out to preach the gospel because we don't know who the elect are. Again, we see the beauty. But when we look at 1 John 2, 2, in its correct context, we understand that John's pointing out that it's not just the Jews that are saved. It's not just those Jews who have put their faith and trust in Christ, but it is people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It doesn't mean that there are 
all tribes, all tongues, all nations, and every single person in them. It's a representative of the whole world. It's like to say Houston was flooded. Is every part of Houston flooded? No. But it's using a, a, a word that can mean two different things. It can mean part of it or all of it. And again, we understand that Christ died for the elect, that his death was sufficient to pay for the sin, that he could have died for all of mankind. That could have been, but it was not the will of the Father. It was the will of the Father to choose some. And although, paragraph 6, the price of redemption wasn't paid until after his incarnation, we see that his death applied to all times, people of all times, this helps us understand that there is one way of salvation it is all through Christ. That the Old Testament was not one salvation and the New Testament is in Christ. But the redemption was paid in his incarnation, but it applied, you could say, backwards or past, present, and future. Romans, or excuse me, Revelation 13, 8, we see where this line from the confession comes. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Was he physically slain at the foundation of the world? No, but it was as if he, if he was, because his death applied to all who are elect from past, present, and future. Christ's death around A.D. 33, applied back to Abraham. Christ's death applied back to Noah. Christ's death applied forward to those of us who are in Christ. It applies in all directions. And we see that um, when the paragraph says, successively from the beginning of the world. But we see how Christ's death is revealed. It's revealed through three things, promises, types, and sacrifices. Now, I think these can somewhat overlap, especially the types and sacrifices. But through promises, how is Christ revealed in promises? Genesis 3.15, that first promise. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The promise of the seed continuing through David and Jesse. The promises that God would redeem a people. The promise that of the new covenant that God would change the heart of stone to a heart of flesh. There's many promises throughout all the Old Testament that teach us and show the picture of Christ. To fulfill that. So through promises. The second through types. Again. <clears throat> with types we have to be careful. Because we're able to look back. Sometimes we can try to connect dots. That weren't really intended to be connected. Typology. Is to be. It's important to realize. That a type is supplementary. Not a primary source of doctrine. Let me say that again. That a type is to be a supplementary doctrine or supplementary information, not where we stand on doctrine. Because types are, we have to be careful because types, 
as one person said, are frail illustrations at best. That if we're trying to, again, like when we're looking at the, the parables, when Jesus is using and speaking in parables and we try to make them, we over-allegorize them, just like with types, we can try to take them too far. That Christ is a picture of the tabernacle. But then when we try to take every little piece of the tabernacle and to say, well, this is how it fits into Christ and this and this and this, that's where they fall apart. Often they focus in one or two certain ways. For instance, the bronze serpent. I I appreciate one time I heard MacArthur say, the only time a type is a type is when the New Testament says it's a type. I think that's a safe place to stand, but I don't don't know if we can kind of lock it all down into that. Um, But we do see the bronze serpent in Numbers 21.9. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. In John 3.14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus said, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Christ is, that, that serpent was a picture of Christ. The people at that time didn't understand that. But looking back, we see how Christ is the, the better fulfillment, the better picture of that. Jonah was a type of Christ. Matthew twelve forty. Jesus says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the type. Is Jonah a perfect type of Christ? Gary? No. (laughs) We were having this discussion because Mr. Powers is teaching in a couple months uh, or next month on, on Jonah's repentance. And the question is, is it a real clear repentance? Christ perfectly obeyed the law. He didn't go that way and have to see where the types fall apart, and we have to be careful. But they're beautiful pictures to show us attributes of Christ. And when we stand on the ones that the New Testament really shows us and connects those dots for us, we can stand more carefully there. And then thirdly, how it's shown to us is through sacrifices. In, in many ways, every part of the sacrificial system points toward Christ. And they were, all of the points were fulfilled in him. The feasts were fulfilled in him. He is the Passover lamb. Like in Exodus twelve forty six, speaking, it says, In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. And in John nineteen thirty six, For these things were done, that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. The day of or the offering at the day of the atonement in Leviticus sixteen, fifteen and sixteen say, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring it bring its blood inside the veil. What's going on is uh, the, the priest has to offer a sacrifice for himself to be able to go in. And to do that with blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat, so he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Hebrews 9, 
verses 12 and 24 say, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained an eternal redemption. Verse 24, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. We see the beautiful picture of Christ in his work. As scripture tells us, we saw dimly, but now we see clearly. There was a a, a veiling that has been unveiled. There's a mystery that has been revealed, and it is Christ. And it's Christ in all of his glory. And then we get to paragraph 7. It says this, Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures, by each nature doing what is... Excuse me, doing that which is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. I I acknowledge that uh, the confession is difficult to listen to and not to see on the screen. And especially this paragraph. And I kind of was like, why is this important? In short, what it's saying is, As we've seen the natures of Christ, two natures, one person. God, man. Deity, humanity. His two natures. But saying that these two natures exist, they don't blur. They don't blur, but sometimes scripture speaks of the whole. And speaking of the whole... They're trying to, in the confession, help us to understand that it's not blurring those lines. Again, to say Houston was at the baseball game, was all of Houston at the baseball game? No. It's using something to kind of just to generalize, but it's not making a specific argument. Charles Hodge, in kind of bringing some clarity, he says, if divine attributes can be conferred on man, he ceases to be man, speaking of Christ. And if human attributes can be transferred to God, he ceases to be God. But we've seen in the last couple chapters, that, uh, excuse me, the last couple paragraphs of this chapter on Christ being the mediator, he has to be fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man. He must be both perfectly to be able to be the perfect sacrifice and to die and be the sacrifice. And so both of those must stay and can never be mixed. R.C. Sproul says it this way, As a matter of convenient theological shorthand, the Bible frequently speaks of the person when only one nature is involved. <clears throat> Wayne Grudem says, Thus Jesus can say, Before Abraham was I am. He's speaking about himself, but in his humanity, in just the humanity aspect of him, can he say that? No. But in his deity, he can. And so the confession is saying, just because Jesus spoke this in his humanity does not blur those lines between his humanity and his deity. And again, it's coming back to the, uh, why are confessions written? To combat heresies. 
and the heresies so much in in the, how those two natures of Christ work together that they're not blended that they're they've not become one that they're not completely separate and being in two men and so sometimes we may ask why is this paragraph here I believe it's because they're trying to help draw distinctions in the culture and what was taking place uh, in the church and heresies. Wayne Grudem continues and he says, Before Abraham was, my divine nature existed. He's kind of paraphrasing Jesus' words. Because he is free to talk about anything done by his divine nature alone or his human nature alone as if something he did. In the human sphere, this is certainly true of our conversation as well. He goes on and says, If I type a letter, even though my feet and toes had nothing to do with typing the letter, I do not tell people, my fingers typed the letter, and my toes had nothing to do with it. That sounds kind of ridiculous, isn't it? But people will pick at Jesus' words. And he's trying to, he says, Rather, I tell people, I typed a letter. That is true because anything that is done by one part of me is done by me. Again, paragraph 7 can kind of catch us off guard or just seem a little like, why is this here? But again, it's a reminder that Christ has two natures, one person. And it's important that they stay distinct. But sometimes Jesus speaks and it sounds like, how's this work? And then they're helping to bring this clarity here. As we've been looking at the... Uh, the picture of Christ as the mediator. We continue to just see the glory of Christ and his humility. His humility to seek and to save the lost. To see his ability to do that because of who he is. And what an amazing truth it is when God opens our hearts to believe that, to understand it, to see the love of God upon display to see our unfaithfulness, and yet he loved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just this time as we're able to continue to to see Christ, to see your work of proclaiming him through the law and the prophets to see the fulfillment of Christ in his incarnation, the fulfillment of those types and promises, or to see the fulfillment of the sacrificial system and Christ being the sacrifice once and for all. Father, we stand in awe that he would humble himself and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Lord, soften our hearts with these words. Cause us to walk humbly and gratefully before you. Lord, is with confidence because Christ is our mediator that we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, as we are able to go uh, before the...